so we're going to be starting a new sermon series, uh, and we're going to be looking at the life of Moses and the way in which the Gospel of Matthew frames Jesus in terms of Moses. Like in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is Moses 2.0. Put a pin in that for just a minute, though. I'm going to talk. So you guys didn't get to go downstairs, so I just so I can try to keep your interest a little bit. So uh, it's impossible to understand what it means to be human. It's impossible to understand our lives without stories. You, we have to frame our lives in terms of stories. Scripture itself is a series of stories. We didn't get a series of rules. So have you, have you read Harry Potter? You guys read Harry Potter? Is that something your family loves? Yes? Harry Potter? Okay, good. I got three Harry Potter fans. My daughter just finished book five. We have to take a break, though. Book six. Whew. It's a little dark. she got to get a little older, I think. But you think about the story, right? You think about the narrative, and Harry, to understand who he is, he has to understand where he comes from, right? So he doesn't know where he comes from. He lives under the stairs. He's got, like, horrible and an uncle. But once he realizes who his parents are and where he comes from, he suddenly has a sense of identity that he didn't have before. I'm a wizard. This is who I am. This is where I come from, right? What did you say, Cole? You're a wizard, Harry. That's right. And then it's not just understanding where I come from in a sense of identity, but it also helps me frame, like, what is my life supposed to be about? Like, what am I supposed to pursue? What am I supposed to cultivate? What am I called to? What's my role in this? And so for Harry, he has a very specific role, given what's happened to him, right? What Voldemort had done to he and his parents. So he understands then what I must do, but to do that, I have to cultivate certain skills, and I've got to go to school, and I need friendship and all that. But story helps frame where he comes from, his identity, what his core values are, what he's supposed to do. And stories, that's what stories do for all of us. That's how they shape our lives. And in fact, I would suggest to you that to say, yes, I'm Christian, is to remove yourself from one story and embed yourself in a different story. A different story that says, this is where you come from. You are a child of God, beloved of God, sacred in worth, right? You're not here by accident. You're not here for no reason. You didn't just happen to emerge, but you're here with a purpose. You're here because you've been created. And it's like, well, created for what? Like, for what reason? Well, if you've been created in love, you're created for love. So this, the, the story, the arc of the story says we're called in some ways, like Christ, to be about selfless love, sacrificial love, to be broken and poured out for the world. Because we can do it, because we know the end of the story, which is like God's kingdom come. Every tear wiped from our eye. There will be no more suffering or pain. And if I can live into that reality now, then I have hope. No matter what the world might look like in this moment, right? I can have peace. No matter what the world might look like in this moment, because I know the end of the story. I know that love gets the first word and love gets the last word. I know that hope gets the first word and hope gets the last word. Like, we get to now participate so like when you read Harry Potter, it can be tough. Like, like the story is so powerful and I love it, right? His mother's love, like this deep magic is what protects him. Like I love that. It's, it's, but how do I live that? Right? I'm not a wizard. I, don't go, I can't go to Hogwarts. I wish I could. It would be wonderful. I love that universe. But as Christians, we have a pretty amazing story that we get to participate in. Right? Like 
We don't just talk about something that happened a few thousand years ago as though it's dead. The narrative lives as we continue to put flesh and bone to God's love in the world. Right? God's story continues every moment we forgive, we hug, we show grace. Every time we, God's story continues, we get to participate. So the story of God gives me a sense of who I am, where I come from, that I'm a child of God, and it tells me what my core values are, like what life's supposed to be about. It gives me a sense of purpose, and then it calls me to an adventure, right? A crazy adventure where God's going to ask me to sacrifice, fight, risk, serve, love. There's no better life than that. And the beautiful thing is we have this sense of future that we get to live into uh, that like actually begins to move the world towards the kingdom of God. So story is powerful, right? Really, really powerful. And Matthew knows this. We don't get a ton of detail about Jesus' life. 33 years, if you took the Gospels out, it's so thin, right? We get very little. We know almost nothing about Jesus as a child or a teenager or a young adult. It starts when he's like 30. And even then, three years, we get a snippet here, a parable there, a healing there. It's like very sparse. Matthew selects details on purpose. He's framing the life of Jesus intentionally because his predominant audience are first century Jews who are suspicious, who don't know, right? We're waiting for the Messiah. That's what the Jews are doing, right? We're waiting for the, the return of the Lord. Is Jesus this person? Really? Are, we, are, we, are you sure? Is this the Messiah, right? And Matthew is saying, don't you see all the signs? Can't you see this? And so he frames the life of Christ. He highlights the moments of Christ's life that parallel Exodus, that parallel the life of Moses. Jesus is Moses 2.0. And this is going to be, I mean, for you that might not sound like much. If you're a first century Jew, that's really, really important. Like, this Jesus figure is in the line of Moses. Moses is the top dog if you're a first century Jew. Jesus now becomes the next step right, in the story of God. So I want you to think briefly about all these parallels. We're going to focus on one of these parallels each Sunday moving forward. The way in which the story of Moses, the story of the Exodus, parallels the story of Jesus. Be okay with that? Right? We're going to talk about the power of these stories. And then, of course, now, 2,000 years later, what does it look like for us to participate in the story, for, for these stories to frame our lives, our journey. Okay, so let's look at some of these parallels. I think I've got the slides right. Oh, sorry, you can skip the scripture. I'm going to read it, but later. So let's look at some of these, right? Moses is born at a time when the Pharaoh was having Hebrew babies killed, right? So, so Moses is born. I want you to think about Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, Old Testament, long time ago, right? Uh, the Israelites are predominantly slaves now in the land of Egypt. Moses is born an Israelite, but uh, Pharaoh is on the hunt because he feels like there's too many Israelites. The Hebrews are having too many babies. We're going to get overrun. So he wants to do something about it. So Moses is in danger when he's born, right? Might be killed. So his family 
puts him, if you remember right, in a reed basket down the Nile River where Moses is discovered by Pharaoh's own daughter, brought into the house of Pharaoh and raised as an Egyptian, even though he's an Israelite, right? But born in difficulty, right? If you remember, the Pharaoh calls the midwives in. We're going to read a little bit about it and says, hey, it's a Hebrew baby. Don't let it live. And the midwives basically just ignore Pharaoh to their own possible peril, right? But let's think about Jesus. Jesus is born at, oh, go back. Jesus is born at a time when Herod, right, is now killing children. And he's born into dangerous circumstances. And in fact, it's the Magi that thwart Herod. Herod says to the Magi, go find Jesus, then tell me. Because in his mind, he's like, oh, he's supposed to be the king of the Jews? Oh, I'm not going to let that happen, right? So Herod's got a scheme to ensure that Jesus doesn't live, but the Magi are the one who thwart. Can you see what Matthew's doing, right? Matthew's highlighting these aspects of Jesus to say very much like what Moses went through. Next, a different parallel. Moses comes to deliver Israel from darkness, bondage, and slavery. Remember, eventually Moses leaves Egypt, and then God sends him back and says, go set my people free, Moses. You've got to go talk to the Pharaoh to set my people free. And of course, Jesus comes to deliver us from the power of darkness, slavery, sin, etc., right? Jesus is here to set us free and deliver us, break those chains, just like Moses was there to break the chains of the Egyptians. Moses leads Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. Right, So you come upon, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Moses and the Israelites come upon the sea. What what do we do? Pharaoh's changed his mind. So the the Egyptian army's coming after Israel. They don't have any weapons. They don't have any military training. And so the choice is we either go back to Egypt as slaves or we trust God and step out over the waters that eventually part. Right? I'm going to talk about that in terms of baptism. That moment when they go into the Red Sea is the moment they become the people of God and not the people of Pharaoh. Israel becomes the people of God through the waters. We now become the people of God through baptism, through the waters of baptism, right? And we see Jesus get baptized in the Jordan River, and I'm going to create or talk about a parallel between these two narratives. Moses is given the law, right, up on Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments and all the law, right? And Jesus brings us a new law. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, right? You've heard it said, uh, you know, uh, you can get a divorce, but I tell you, you can't, right? So uh, Jesus provides a new law for us, is a lawgiver much like Moses. After traveling through the Red Sea, Israel spends 40 years wandering in the desert, right? Right after Jesus' baptism in the water, Jesus immediately, in all the Gospels that talk about the story, is led into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. The desert wandering. This is a very interesting parallel, right? Matthew. This happens, by the way, these things in Jesus' life happen in like the first five chapters. It's, it's like Moses 2.0, Moses 2.0. Moses. This is, what, this is how you want to frame the life, the understanding, the story of Jesus, right? Moses gets Israel to the Jordan River but does not cross it. Moses does not make it into the promised land. He gets them only so far. The very river that Jesus is baptized into, uh, and uh, we might say Jesus is here to lead us further still in towards the kingdom of God, towards that ultimate promised land, right? This is where Jesus is, is, is sending us 
leading us, guiding us. So you have a lot of parallels between the Exodus story, the life of Moses, and the life of Jesus. So I want to look at just one of these parallels today. And I'm going to read a little bit of scripture, so try to stay with me. I'm not going to read all of it word for word, but I am going to read a little bit from Exodus and a little bit from Matthew. But I want you to hear how intentional Matthew is to frame it this way. So this is uh, Exodus 1, and then I'm going to read parts of Exodus chapter 2. So remember the context here. It's the second book of the Bible. It's very early on. Israel had to go to Egypt because of a famine. uh, And then eventually over time, the Egyptians made the Israelites slaves, right? So that's sort of uh, where we're at. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it is a boy, do not let him live. If it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected Yahweh, so they did not do what Pharaoh had ordered, which again, he's the most powerful person in the world. So for these midwives, these women to thwart Pharaoh is huge. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, Why are you doing this? Why are you letting the boys live? And the midwives told Pharaoh, Hebrew women aren't like, like, <laughs> aren't like Egyptian women. They're much stronger and give birth before we can get there. Which um, you should laugh at. This is humorous, right? This is a way for them to both insult Egyptian women, uh, praise Hebrews, but it also sort of highlights uh, Pharaoh's lack of intelligence, right? To not see through this. Exactly. So, uh, so Moses gets pushed down in the reed basket. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her woman servants walked beside it. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying, and she had compassion for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. So she knows, and she knows what her father has asked, and she rejects that command, that order, and she brings Moses in as her own child. So I want you to hear now Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled because... He's supposed to be the ruler, and if there's a baby born that's supposed to be king of the Jews, this represents a threat to his power. King Herod was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born so that he could kill him. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they had heard the king, they went. They followed the star. They find Mary and Joseph. They give honor to to, to Jesus. But because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi went back to their own country by another route, thwarting Herod's command much like thwarting Pharaoh's command. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape 
to Egypt because Jesus isn't safe, obviously, with Herod in power. So ironically, they have to flee to Egypt where Moses was born, right, to escape as refugees. And then eventually, out of Egypt, they come back when Herod dies. The parallels to me are clear. Jesus' birth, Jesus' early ordeal is so, so similar to that of Moses. When I think about these stories, I think about where I fit. Where do you fit? Like, how do these stories help me make sense of my life? Not even Moses, not even Jesus are spared the uncertainty of what it means to be human. Being human means figuring out how to live with uncertainty. Not Moses, not even Jesus get to avoid pain and fear and anxiety. They endure it. They experience it. They're not spared because what it means to be human, whether we like it or not, is to experience pain finiteness, mistakes, hurt, betrayal, limitation. They're both born into situations I can't even fathom, given the peace and stability that my own children experience. So how do we allow this narrative to help us make sense of our lives? I'm going to make an argument, and I've made this argument in the past, that God is not pulling the strings. God is making phone calls. God's not pulling the strings. God's making phone calls. Will you answer? Are you going to answer the call? Or maybe I should say God's sending texts. Is that better, So, God's sending texts. Yeah, I know you're not going to answer the phone if I call. But God's sending texts. Will you reply? God's just waiting for those three little magical dots to show up like you're texting back. You know what I'd like to believe? What I tried to believe for a lot of my life was that, well, God's just taking care of it. God's just got it. Oh, that, that made me feel a lot better. Like, oh, good, I'll just take a deep breath. Oh, God's got it. I've, I've come to believe that God's not just taking care of it, that God's making calls and God's sending texts, hoping, right? It's like the hope of God, hoping, longing, praying, that we might respond, that you might say yes. How does Moses survive? What does this narrative say? It requires two midwives to obey God, not Pharaoh. It requires Pharaoh's own daughter to obey God, not Pharaoh. It requires a lot of courage on the part of the people that are involved in that story for Moses to survive, for Moses to be Moses. For Jesus to be Jesus means Mary has to say yes to God. She has to answer the call. Joseph has to answer the call. Magi have to answer the call. For whatever reason, and I can't figure it out, God has decided to put God's fate into our hands. God has said, Joe, will you put flesh and bone to my love in the world? Will you do that? Will you answer my call? 
Will you be courageous? Will you love? Will you show grace? Will you stand up and speak truth to power? Will you care about children in danger who don't have enough? Will you do it? Because if you do, my love shows up in the world. And when you don't, it doesn't. I would like to write myself out of God's story and just say, well, God's the author. God will do it. God will take care of it. But every time I read the Bible, God's telling human beings, will you do it? Moses, will you go to Egypt? Jesus, will you drink this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane? Will you? That's a request. That doesn't feel like God just does it. So I don't get off the hook, and you don't get off the hook. We're the adventurers in this story that get to put flesh and bone to what God is doing, what God is up to, but we have to say yes. And that's a hard thing to do, to say, I'll say yes to what you're asking. I'll say yes to the next step in my faith journey, whatever that might be. Sometimes it might risk a lot. It might cost us a lot. Sometimes it might cost us almost nothing. But God's not going to stop calling, and God's not going to stop texting. My prayer is that I'm not going to look at it and go, oh, right? Everyone has this, I assume this is a universal human experience. I look at my phone, depending on who it is, oh, and I'm like, boop. <laughs> I'll, if it's important, they'll leave a message. <laughs> I, I would like to tell you that every time I felt God calling, I was like, Giddy up, baby, let's do it. Let's ride them, cowboy. Like, I'd love to tell you that's true. But instead, I think a lot of times I hear God's call and I go, boop, God will leave a voicemail. Which he will, by the way. And he'll keep pestering you. And he keeps calling like every four days. But it's amazing that when I answer, it's, the, it's, it's like all of a sudden my, the adventure of my life takes turns I could have never imagined, Right? I could have never imagined that God wants to write a story with us as the main characters. We get to play a part. We get to play a role. God wants to put our feet on a path. All we must do is say yes. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful. I'm grateful you're a storytelling God. You're a story-living God. And that you want us to participate in your story you want us to put flesh and bone to your love and grace in the world and so my prayer is that you would give us just a little bit more faith more courage more love so that we can say yes to the call that you place on our lives the journey that you call us to go on the adventure of faith that you have in store for us help us to say yes lord amen all right. I mean, speaking of grand.